So one of my favorite TV shows growing up for a large portion of my life was Mythbusters. Do you ever watch Mythbusters? Not very much, but I know I have seen a few episodes. It's a great show. It's on Discovery Plus if you get bored. It's still worth watching this day. But on the Discovery Channel, which is where they showed Mythbusters, uh, a new show came out that I was interested in for a small, very brief period of time. It wasn't that popular of a show. I think there might be two seasons of it. It's called Barter Kings. You ever heard of it? No, but this sounds exactly up your alley. It is, because it's one of those, like, scripted but not scripted, like, about their job but not about their job, highly produced. You know what I'm saying? Like, one of those shows, like Storage Wars or Pawn Stars. Like, they're interesting shows, and I love them. It's right up my alley. But Barter Kings, right? And so the whole premise of the show was they would start with an item. There were these guys that, owned, for some reason, owned some kind of huge warehouse with a bunch of stuff in it. And they would start out with an item uh, of, of, like, less than $100 value. And their goal, they would always pick something they wanted. Like, oh, I want to get uh, uh, two four-wheelers. And so I'll start with this and we're going to trade up to this stuff, right? That was the whole goal. They would they would just trade something and they'd keep trading up until they would get the thing they wanted, right? Without spending any money. All they were doing was, was transferring items uh, for other items, right? And so they would start with, I think one episode they started with, you know, like when kids play baseball, their coach has like a ball on a stick, that they hit. Yeah. They started one time with one of those and then they traded that ball on a stick to somebody for, you know, it was like a bunch of random stuff that was basically, if it was worth more money, they were like, yeah, this seems like it. And they lived in the Vegas area, I think. So there's quite a large amount of people who are interested in looking for things. So it was a good area to do this, but I'd never really thought about trading someone for stuff, right? I, I, that's not how I function. I just go to the store and I buy things, right? Yeah. And so I had never really done it. I'd never really had the opportunity to do it. I, of course, would trade friends for, you know, we would trade like, oh, I have this whatever, right? I have this thing and you have this thing. Oh, you have this controller and yours is a cooler color. Can we trade? And we would trade or whatever, right? But I'd never really traded anything of value until this past week, I got the opportunity to make a trade that I was all for. So I saw online on Facebook, one of my friends who I know personally wanted to either sell or trade for something. Uh, He had a 3D printer and I've always wanted a 3D printer because I want to make custom Rubik's cubes. That's the reason (laughs) I want it. Right. Okay. And, and they're getting cheaper. They're, they're like becoming more consumer things. You can put them in your house and they're, it's like, they're becoming more popular, but it's still a thing I would never spend. They're like 400 bucks. I would not really spend $400 on one, at least at this point in my life. But he said, willing to trade for stuff of equal value. And I was like, I've got to have something that's equal value. I've got to have something. And so I thought through and I was like, I got an Xbox and a PlayStation. I'll give him both of those. What, what, what does he want? Oh, I've got a guitar. What, what does he want? So I told him, hey, I've got an Xbox. I got a PlayStation. I got a Houston Lecker guitar. What do you want? we want any of those things he was like i think i might want the guitar and so we i told him what kind of guitar it was whatever and so i successfully just this week i went and picked it up i traded a guitar for a 3d printer i haven't used it yet but i finally got to fulfill my lifelong dream of being just like the barter kings Welcome to the Factoid Podcast. You didn't ask for it, but we're going to tell you anyway. My name's Chris Humphreys. And I'm Peyton Gessel. I recently drove out to Indianapolis to help out my mother-in-law and father-in-law. They are trying to sell their house and they're looking to, to downsize. And they need some help with cleaning out the house they currently live in. And they've lived there for several decades at this point. So they've accumulated a lot of things over the years. So we got all of the different family members to 
time up their schedules right so that we could all be in the area to help over the course of a few days. And the problem with that is that on one of the days, we had too many people in town to fit in the house at night. So on the first night that we got to town, we ended up having to camp in a tent in the yard. And it was Amy, myself, and Keely, Kellen, and Kendrick, which for the uh, for the listeners, those are the nieces and nephews that Chris and I both share. And so the five of us were out in the tent and we've camped with them before. They're pretty good at it, honestly. They they there weren't really any issues. Probably the worst thing that happened is that I did tell them about the Mothman right before we went to sleep. <laughs> so then they, they're asking questions because I brought it up. So I have to show them the picture of the, the statue in West Virginia of the Mothman. Have you ever been there? No. Oh, man. If anyone finds themselves within like a half hour of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, you've got to go. It is it is a sight to see. So anyways, we, we get to sleep. We, we get a decent night's sleep. But we wake up at like 6.30 in the morning or so to the sound of Kendrick, who is a five-year-old. We wake up to the sound of him farting really loud. (laughs) And Amy and I look over at each other and we're laughing. And at this point, all of us are awake because of this fart. And uh, a couple seconds later, Kendrick says, Uncle Chris's toots smell so bad that they make my eyes water. And I thought, surely this is just a five-year-old exaggerating. This can't be true. So I talked to his dad later, and he says that it's true, that <laughs> that you he was actually tearing up from you. Yeah, it's true. We went to their house uh, just, some, I don't know, right before the time that you guys camped. And we were getting ready to leave their house and go somewhere. And I passed gas before I left the house right in the doorway and uh, my eyes as well as his eyes were watering. It's true. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. I didn't know that the whole world was going to know that, but now, <laughs> but now they do. Yeah. Uh, so don't worry. We're not doing the whole episode on like the science behind <laughs> that. I, I will spare you. Uh, but what I did want to talk about is the unique thing about our camping experience is that normally when you camp in somebody's yard, you camp in the backyard. It's just like more, it feels more like nature, but because of the poison ivy that was in the backyard, we had to camp in the front yard that night. And it worked out fine that we were in the front yard. But um, the, as they're trying to get the house sold, they're trying to work on other things around the house to try to make it easier to sell. And they wanted to work on this poison ivy problem. So Amy's sister calls up a friend who lives in the area and he brings his goat out to the house and he uses the goat to take care of the poison ivy problem. Have you ever heard of this? He brings his goat. Yeah. And he eats it. Yeah, he brings the he brings the goat whose name is Loretta. Loretta comes out of the van and he parades her out to the backyard. He sets up this electric fence in the area that most of the poison ivy is at and she just goes to town. <laughs> I've heard that goats eat everything. Like I think it's a jo- like it's not really a joke. Like they say, like wherever they're at, you don't have to mow it. You don't. Have to, they just eat everything. I've yeah. heard that. 
so I guess that makes sense to me, but I didn't realize that it was like, oh, this is a practical way to get rid of poison ivy. Yeah, yeah. So they they do not eat cans. I did learn that that is a joke, but yes, they <laughs> they are they are not picky at all. And some of that has to do with the climate that they are originally found in. So goats are found closer to the tropics, and when people think of the tropics, they often think of jungles. But there's also a lot of areas where there are a lot of deserts in warmer areas, and goats live in a lot of deserts where there are not a lot of plants. So over time, if a goat is living in an area that doesn't have a lot of plants, but it eats plants, it is going to develop a stronger stomach that allows it to be a lot less picky than other animals like cattle or sheep. Whereas like if you are a farmer that has cattle, you have to be like very careful about like what they eat because they can eat something that could poison them. But with goats, almost everything is on the menu. And one of the things that really differentiates them in their diets is all of these poisonous plants that humans hate. Poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac. They can digest all of these and there's really no problem. And like the way poison ivy actually works is there's an oil that's called erushiol. And whenever that oil gets on your skin, it causes itching and sores. But it doesn't affect the goat's skin. Mm. And obviously when it eats it, it doesn't affect its digestion. And ultimately when the goat poops it out, uh, it is able to break down the poison ivy enough that there is no sort of seeds that can... Mm. Like it doesn't. it isn't just reseeding the area with new poison ivy. Like it, it digests it enough so it doesn't work. But the poop actually does fertilize the grass and everything that is alive there and does help the environment. So there are a lot of businesses, I'm finding mostly in the East Coast, but in some other areas where they will offer official goat lawn care services. So what we did a few weeks ago was more of just a fun test. Like uh, the guy that owns Loretta has him eat different, has her eat different things around the property. But uh, this was just a fun thing. But you, in certain areas, you can pay somebody to bring a bunch of goats out to your yard, your business, or whatever, and they can mow. For example, for a long time, Google's headquarters was mowed by a herd of goats. No way. Yeah. For several years, they did this. And, uh, but like, what I find more interesting is that kind of selective treatment with eating all the poison ivy. So I have a lot of experience with uh, poison ivy, not necessarily from uh, getting it on my skin and itching, but specifically with herbicides that treat poison ivy. For my job, I make a wide variety of videos and we have made videos about weed killers that are specifically targeting poison ivy and other similar types of plants. So I thought it would be good to see what the goats are up against and just see how they compare. So the way that herbicides work is that there are different methods for actually killing the plant. And one of the things that they do is that they are targeting the root. You, if you really want to kill a plant and have it not come back, you have to kill it to the root, mm -hmm. which I'm sure at some point when you were a kid, your mom told you to like pick thistles in the yard or my mom did at least. <laughs> uh, but like, if you don't pull out the weed from the root, it's just going to grow back right. and there, it doesn't really work that well. So an herbicide, what it does is it tells the plant to just expend all of that extra energy that's stored in the root and just tell the plant, like, use it all up, keep growing, and it basically grows itself until there's no energy left to grow and it dies. 
But this is not an instant process. It takes a while. It, it can take weeks. It could take a month to actually do this. And if you spray like a weed killer on your poison ivy, you assume that something's going to happen. And like you wouldn't notice for a while that it's actually dying. So what a lot of these herbicides do is they have several ingredients. And one of them is it's kind of like a petty ingredient where it's killing, like one ingredient is killing it slowly, but the other one just like makes the leaves kind of turn yellow and start to wilt because like in our dumb brains, that means weed is dying. <laughs> so you have to have this additional chemical to let people know, like, don't keep spraying it. It is going to die. Uh, and like recently I learned that people are trying to, like scientists are trying to improve the speed of that because sometimes if you spray, it takes 24 hours to see the results and some people spray and they think it's not working and they keep spraying and they overspray the area, which can have effects on the environment and just it's a waste of the product. So what's funny is goats kind of affect the plants in a similar way, I learned, where the goats go and eat the leaves off these plants. And I watched Loretta do this. And I will say that she did not finish eating the area in the 10 hours that she was there. But if you had like a dozen goats or even a half dozen goats, they could have knocked it out really fast. Mm. So she's eating the leaves of the plant. And what that accomplishes is that it forces the, the roots to expend more energy to grow more leaves so that it can receive more light and keep growing. And what you would do if you ran a goat lawn care service is that you would have maybe every few weeks you would have the goats come back and they just eat the leaves and then they take them away, eat the leaves and they have them come back. And if you do this several times, you will kill the weed to the root. It might honestly take around the same amount of time for that to happen and it accomplishes the same goal. So herbicides are definitely like a fairly efficient way to kill the weeds and they're designed specifically for this. Goats were not specifically designed to kill these plants. Uh, but one of, one of the challenges with using weed killers in this scenario is you need to use them correctly. And if you live towards near bodies of water and you are spraying the weed killer and it rains right afterwards, there's a chance that the water is going to run off and it might affect, it might run into a river and if there's algae in that river, it's going to probably kill it because algae is a plant and fish are also very susceptible to mm -hmm. things like that. And there are certain areas where if you're in the, like the wrong environment, it may not make sense to, to use this or you just need to be very careful. So I don't want to talk down herbicides because I do think there are definitely valid situations to use them. And I'm going to let the listener decide for themselves what they want to use. But I will say we got a lot of entertainment out of Loretta the goat. She really enjoyed that she had a captive audience and the kids loved her. And while they may be a little bit slower, I think I think they get the job done. Just you've got to let them go at their own pace. Go it. <laughs> So we went on a road trip uh, this past month. We actually went out to Colorado to see family, which would include Keely and Kellen and Kendrick. We went and stayed at their house for a while. We were out there. Uh, we actually drove like 3,500 miles on this road trip. Wow. It was a long, it was a lot of driving, a uh, lot of driving, which also means we used the GPS a lot. Uh, and that's an interesting topic in itself. The GPS is something I've always had. 
My entire driving career, I have always had a GPS. Now, I didn't have a smartphone when I first started driving, but I had a physical GPS. My, my dad has always had one kind of since they gained popularity. And so I got the one that he like didn't use anymore. He had got a better one. So I, I got his in my car. So I wasn't doing a whole lot of driving out of town at the time. But if I did, I had one. I've always had a GPS. I couldn't, I couldn't live without. I couldn't get where I go without it. I don't know the directions to anywhere outside of inside of town, right? Like I can get, you know, to the town over, I can get to certain places, but if I need to go to somewhere I've never been, I can't look at a map and decipher how to get there without a GPS. I just can't do it. I used to work at a Ford dealership and uh, all my coworkers were retired old guys, right? And and be, it's because the job was kind of an on-call. They would call and say, hey, can you deliver this car today at this time? And and so the people who that job kind of caters to is people who have completely free time, right? Yep. So I would have to say no a lot more than my coworkers were, but it was a super fun job. But what was different is these guys were all 65, 65 was the youngest, right? My my youngest coworker was 65 years old. Uh, and then it just went up from there. There was an 87-year-old guy who I drove with which is pretty wild. We had all these kind of places we would take cars, right? If like, so how it works is if a, a police station wanted a police car, they would buy it from our dealership and then we would take it to upfitters to upfit it with like cop lights and then we take it to an upfitter to up, up, upfit it with radios and then all, all kinds of different stuff, whatever they wanted. And then we would take it and pick it up from those places and deliver it to the police station. So we did all that beforehand. So we had all these places that we worked with on a regular basis in the whole entire, and basically in the Colorado Denver metro area mostly. And there was all these different businesses that we got different things done at over the years. So all my coworkers knew the locations of every single place, exactly where they were. And there are dozens of them. Like we worked with a lot of different people. They knew exactly how to get to all these places without looking all the time. And so when I started that job, I didn't know, right? I didn't know any of those places. And, and still to this day, after working that job for a full year, I had to go and look. We had a book with all the addresses in it. I had to go look at that and put it in my phone. And that's how I got there. I got there using my GPS all the time. They did not need a GPS. I can't imagine living in a world where I have to get somewhere without one. Absolutely. Did you have to hide the fact that you were using the GPS from your coworkers? Like, did they look down on you? They didn't look down on me. I think they, they would make fun of me occasionally. Like, oh, how are you going to get anywhere? But also, it was pretty funny, really, because... They built in time for us to like go to McDonald's and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And they never took the quickest way somewhere. And I don't know if it was, I think it was a mixture of not knowing which way was quickest, but also like just desiring to take a more enjoyable route for them or whatever. Yeah. And so I would put it in my GPS and I would always get there faster than anyone else would. Like we tried to follow each other, but when you're in like, traffic yeah. it's almost impossible sometimes and so i would always get there faster than them and i would sometimes wait 20 or 30 minutes for these guys to show up wow. which was funny so yeah the gps never let me down and, and of course you know there are times where it can but when i was growing up um my dad and my dad would go on trips uh like with his cousins right and when i got old enough he finally let me go on trips with him sometimes and I was probably 10 or 11. I don't know. But I remember going on a trip and my dad's cousin had just gotten a GPS. And this is like in the mid 2000s, like early on in yeah. GPS technology for like consumers. Right. And it was this little thing. Uh, and it had like a screen that was probably just a couple inches and it was black and white and it wasn't high resolution or anything. And you had to pre-download the sections of place where you were going to go and, and put it on your GPS in order to use it. Right. Wow. So it was just very different than it is now. And I remember it telling us to take directions that 
weren't right. Like turn right here and there's no right here or whatever, right? And that was a lot more common then. And so I remember seeing that one and being able to see GPS technology progress over the years has been interesting to me. Uh, and now your phone is the best GPS there is because it updates constantly. It, it It's with you all the time. It's quicker, right? If you like have a standalone GPS, your phone will find directions quicker. Absolutely. Because it gets to use Google and Google servers and stuff like that, right? It's just not just all built in locally. So your phone is the best GPS there is. And we got to truly just test out how good a phone GPS is. It'll tell you what traffic is. It'll tell you construction. It'll tell you if there's a wreck. It tells you all that stuff, right? It's pretty amazing. And it will reroute you based on all that stuff. Well, that brings me to the next thing, right? After our trip, we got home and in our town, soon after we got back on a Saturday was garage sale day for our whole town. And so we walked around town. We weren't really shopping. We were just kind of walking. We tried to go on as many walks as possible. And we were walking. We walked by a lot of garage sales. And uh, because it was garage sale day, there was lots of garage sale traffic, all kinds of it. Um, And so people knew like today's garage sale day. Let's look around for garage sales. But on a normal day, if you decide to have a garage sale, if you don't live in a perfect place, it can be hard to get people to drive by your garage sale. You know what I'm saying? And you're basically, you're stuck with where you live to have a garage sale. You can't just take it to a good place because that's not, that's not how that works. It's your own garage sale. You're supposed to use your own garage. You know what I mean? And so garage sale day made me think about, well, how would one get people to drive by their house? And so I was thinking about that mixed with the knowledge I had about GPSs and using a GPS. And it got me thinking, how does Google know where the traffic is? How does Google know where the wrecks are? How do they do that? Right. And I got to thinking more about it. And and if you look up a business on Google, it'll show you like the busiest times of the day. You know what I'm saying? It'll have like a little graph and be like 12 PM busy as usual or whatever. Like it'll say stuff like that. How do you think it knows that? My guess is number of users who are using their phone and they're logged into a Gmail account somewhere on the phone and they're using that data and comparing it to the GPS coordinates of an area and saying that this is when people show up. Yeah, it's it's literally people who have opted into location services who are using, like not using even necessarily, who just have allowed Google to see where they are it can tell that there are people at this business during these hours. Like there's a hundred people at Walmart at 12 PM on Tuesday or whatever. Right. Wow. And so it turns out the same is true for traffic. It knows if they're like, it'll turn yellow if it gets a little busy and it'll turn red if it's really busy. Right. And when you get to the red zone, Google will do all it can to reroute traffic. Yes. Right. It'll try to get you around that to a quicker direction. Right. If there's a wreck, if there's construction, if there's red, the reason it knows that there's a backup is because the same reason enough people use Google services, opted in to location services for them to know in this three block radius, there are 400 people sitting still. Right. So it knows there's got to be a traffic backup. And so the light bulb comes on. And I thought about I thought about starting out this this podcast section with a title. How to get people to your garage sale, right? <laughs> and and hear me out. This is how you do it. You make Google think there's a traffic jam on the nearest main road by your garage sale. How do you do that? Well, you just get a few hundred people or a hundred in a smaller town, let's say a hundred people. Cuz the uh, from what I understand the What'll turn it red is like large number of people based on 
the average traffic. So yeah. like where I live, 30 or 40 cars in one spot is probably going to constitute red traffic because, or maybe less than that, because it's not an interstate where there's hundreds of cars going by per minute, right? It's yeah. like a town where people don't go through that often, sure. right? And we just live one block off the main road here. So I'm thinking if I can make Google think that there's a traffic jam on the main road, it's going to start routing people by my house, right? And so I thought, how do you do it? Well, you just got to get a group of people to stay there. Better yet, you just have to get a bunch of different phones logged into a bunch of different Google accounts Yeah. on that road, right? So I started looking into this. This is like, I know this is stupid, right? It's unnecessary <laughs> it is not because stupid. it truly, it truly doesn't matter, but it, it could be a service that I could sell, right? I just get a bunch of devices and say, I'll reroute traffic for yeah. you, whatever, right? Call well, it your... turns out I'm not the first person to think of it. And to be fair, I might be the first person to think of it in a business perspective, right? In a way to get people by your house. But I did find an article. Uh, this is what it is titled, okay? Artist uses 99 phones to trick Google into traffic jam alert. And I kid you not, it is a man walking down a road with one of those red flyer wagons filled with phones. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was able to verify that that is enough to convince Google of a traffic jam, which I just find kind of fascinating. Like the fact that it's not like some crazy satellite looking down, seeing physical cars. It's that enough people are using a service that enough people use that it can just be assumed, right? The amount of data that, that the internet has on everything is, is fascinating, right? But here's what I want. I want to test it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how. And maybe this is maybe this is a call to all those listeners. If you have, <laughs> just kidding. I don't know. If Send we're in get all nine... your phones, yes. okay? I, I, if there's a way, I would love to be able to come back to you and tell you that it works for real. That I could somehow get someone to come by my house because of this. But I only have one phone, okay? Yeah, I could you, come you up with a couple of devices. Yeah. We we could come up with a few. Yeah, here's a third. Right. I have here. a wagon too, so like I don't need the wagon. Okay. I just great. need the phones. All right. Start looking for some good deals on. Well, does it need to be a smartphone? I think it needs to. I think it because otherwise it has has GPS services. Yeah, you're right. Okay. But I'm sure at this point you can buy something that runs Android or even an old iPhone for like nearly nothing. And yeah. if some people don't get rid of their, I sell all my old phones always. I like trade up for a better one. I started doing that. And yeah. so I don't have any old ones. I have one old one, I guess. So to be fair, I have that. Uh, but I don't have, like if I would have saved them all, I'd probably have more than a dozen that I could use, you know. Uh, so anyway... If you want to send them in, shoot a shoot an email. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Factoid Podcast. If you have a factoid and want to share it with us, send us an email at what's yours at factoidpodcast.com. You can find us on every major podcast platform anywhere you get your podcast or on our website factoidpodcast.com we'll see you in two weeks